Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motzen. I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are starting a two-week series with James Jordan on rereading Revelation. If you have not already, we invite you to sign up for the Theopolis app. You can download that app from your app store, sign up for an account, and then you'll have access to our ever-growing collection of ebooks, audio lectures, and videos. This year marks the 10th anniversary of our work here at Theopolis. We held our first course in August 2013, and since then we have hosted dozens of intensive and regional courses. We've produced hundreds of podcasts and videos and articles. We've published a number of books, and we have sponsored the Civitas Group. We hope that many of you will join us for our third Theopolitan Ministry Conference on July 17th and 18th. And if you come to the conference, you can plan to stay for the Trinity Feast on the evening of the 18th, where we will celebrate our first decade with food and drink throughout the evening, along with music and singing, and a talk by Kelly Capick. For information about those events, you can find links in the show notes. We want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan discussing the book of Revelation. The lectures that I'm going to give today and tomorrow I've just called Rereading Revelation. And the basic idea that I'm getting at is that the book of Revelation encourages us to read it several times and with several different kinds of things in mind. And I just hope to substantiate that some. As if the book wasn't complicated enough, the first time through, we're encouraged to go back through and look at other dimensions. And so I want to talk about a variety of ways to read the book, each of which is true, each a valid dimension of the book. And this won't be comprehensive, it's just suggestive. I've only been through the book once, and that took 204 Sunday school lessons, so... I go through it again. Any members of the church I go to hearing me say this are probably terrified at the thought. Now, I really don't want you to look at your notes. You've got them, and we'll get to them eventually. But the first thing I want to talk about is hearing the book of Revelation because we need to learn to hear the word. Because hearing is different from silent reading. And if we can learn to hear better... That is an aspect or dimension of the book of Revelation that we don't think about. The book is so complicated that we think immediately we've got to study it. But the first thing we need to do is not read it, but listen to it. And the Bible, both the Old and the New Testament, is written in prosody. It's not written in prose, and it's not written in poetry. It's written in something in between. Actually, as I hope to show you in a little while, from what I can tell, everything in the Bible is written to be chanted. And if we read it that way, that would be an aspect of, don't, don't be frightened now, I mean reading chanting now. But if we read it and heard it that way, we'd be hearing a rhythm that's in the word that's actually part of the word itself, which we lose if our translations are overly schematic. But what I want to do first is to talk about interpretation that comes from rereading. Because we come to the Bible 
as modern people with certain demands on how it has to be written and how it has to communicate. Terms have to be defined. So we have the Shorter Catechism that defines one term after another. And we do theology that way. And sermons start with a word study where we have defined the term. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. But God often communicates to us not by defining a term, but by just using it over and over again until we sort of pick up on what it means. And I mentioned this the other day when we were talking about the word flesh. Paul uses the word flesh over and over again. He never says exactly what he means by it. And so so-called New Testament theologians who don't know the Old Testament are always trying to figure out what Paul means by flesh. Well, they should go back and read Leviticus, where the word is used over and over again in a variety of contexts. But there again, it's never defined. It's just used over and over and over again. And you would pick up from Leviticus, from hearing it over and over again, you'd pick up a meaning of it that is certainly Paul's meaning. Paul is not going to suddenly come up with another definition of a word that God has already defined. But the Bible is written in this way that we pick things up. Now, in a larger theological way, we call this the order of doctrine flowing from the order of worship. That is, the structure of prayer or the structure of our action before God has a way of shaping the mind and how we think. Just as what we think shapes what we do. And to me, one of the classic illustrations is, it would be interesting to do a whole study of this, although it would be a monumental task, to look at the way different churches do the Lord's Supper and relate that to how they do theology. We're told in the New Testament precisely and in detail exactly how it's to be done. You take bread, you give thanks for it, you break it, you distribute it, And when everybody's eaten, you take the cup, you give thanks for it, you distribute it, and everybody drinks it. Two distinct actions, a priestly act, a kingly act, a bread act, a wine act. Everybody eats the bread before you do the cup. You break the bread. You have two prayers, not one. You go to Eastern Church, they don't have two prayers. They have one prayer. They don't serve the bread and then the wine. They take one-fourth of the loaf of bread, stuff it down in a cup, and spoon them out together soggy bread into the mouth of the communicant. Now, that is, whoa, way different from what Jesus said to do. But all of our churches in various ways do things differently. I grew up in Lutheran church. We would come up. There was one prayer, not two. And in tables, what were called tables, or rows, we would kneel. We'd get the bread. And then a minute later, get the cup, go back. Some Another group of people would come. So the whole church didn't eat the bread and then get the cup. In one way or the other, you get changes in it. Now, it would be interesting to look and see if you are not using bread but wafers and not using wine but grape juice, what does that do to your theology? If you have one prayer instead of two, how do you understand the ritual? I guarantee you, if you have two prayers instead of one, you could never think that Jesus is somehow stuffed down inside those elements and the elements can be reserved. Because then you'd have Jesus in the bread and Jesus also in the wine. And then, is it part of Jesus here and part there, or what? You wouldn't get that kind of theology. Or if you do a ritual where you consecrate it or give thanks, instead of giving thanks, you consecrate it and convert it. Giving thanks is very simple. Consecrating and converting it somehow is more mysterious. 
and you've set it on the table and you do some other things, after a while people say, what is that stuff on the table over there? Is it still bread and wine or is it something different? Should we bow down to it or not? If you just didn't do that, if you took the bread, broke it, and passed it out, that question wouldn't arise. That theology wouldn't arise. Our rituals have a whole lot to do with how our theology works. Doing these rituals different ways has a lot to do with how theology is done different ways. Well, the same is true with hearing the Scripture. If we hear the book of Leviticus read, we will pick up on certain things that will shape our thinking, and over the course of time, the categories will settle out in our mind. But we can't look for definitions of words because there's no place in the Bible that gives a definition of the word flesh as it's used in Leviticus and Paul or a precise explanation as to why you can't boil a kid in his own mother's milk. Try to find a passage of the Bible that explains that. You can't find one. You just have to not do it and think about it, reflect on it, hear it over and over again, and eventually it begins to settle into you what it might mean, what range of things it might be speaking to. And I want to use as an illustration of something out of the Bible, a poem that you're probably familiar with, and I want you to hear it. And because this is outside the Bible, I think it's easier to illustrate with it because we don't have any mysticism around it, which we would tend to have with the text of the Bible, unless I pulled up an obscure text, in which case it might even be more difficult. But listen to Robert Frost's poem, Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening. Whose woods these are, I think I know. His house is in the village, though. He will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. My little horse must think it queer to stop without a farmhouse near. Between the woods and frozen lake, the darkest evening of the year. He gives his harness bells a shake, as if to ask if there is some mistake. The only other sounds the sweep of easy wind on downy flake. The woods are lovely, dark, and deep, but I have promises to keep, and miles to go before I sleep, and miles to go before I sleep. How many of you have heard that poem before? It's fairly familiar. Now... When you listen to it, did you hear some sounds in there and those sounds or rhythms in the text are part of it? Listen to this. He gives his harness bells a shake to ask if there is some mistake. The only other sounds the sweep of easy wind on downy flake. You hear a contrast in sound there that's part of it. If we listen to that, eventually we might put words on what is being said there. The horse is disturbing the scene, but the scene itself is very quiet. The horse doesn't know what's going on. After all, it's just a horse. When he dies, that's it for the horse. <laughs> or not. But the man is having a different kind of epiphany, all right? We hear that in the words it's written. The woods are lovely, dark, and deep. But I have promises to keep, and miles to go before I sleep. And miles to go before I sleep. Now, does anybody have trouble understanding what the second time 
and miles to go before I sleep means. He doesn't tell you. I know Calvinistic theologians who would say, well, Jim, I say, and miles to go before I sleep, and miles to go by for, before I sleep. Frost just wanted to repeat that. The second phrase means exactly the same thing. Well, no, it doesn't. You know it means, and years to go before I die. But it doesn't say that. Can I prove that to you? Can I prove that the second time it means, and years to go before I die? I can't prove that. How would I prove it? You can only pick it up from hearing it over and over again and reflecting on it. Hear it again. What do you pick up? The woods are lovely, dark, and deep. But I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep. And miles to go before I sleep. So you can only just pick it up. There's something attractive about those woods. They're lovely. They're also dark. They also go way on down somewhere into a mystery. And he's attracted by it. And if he were a German romantic instead of an American romantic, he'd be all caught up in Waldheinsamkeit. Boy, let's get out in the woods and be alone. If Goethe had written this, he would have said, those woods are lovely, dark, and deep, and I think I'll just stay here. But you see... Frost is, you know a little history of literature, Frost is almost commenting on German Romanticism, which is going off in the woods and being alone. And over everything is quiet. In all the treetops you can hear hardly a sound. The little birds are quiet in the woods. Just stay for a while and you too will become quiet. Now that's Goethe in English. In German it's prettier to listen to. But I'd probably get it wrong if I tried to remember it in German, so I won't try. I just won't even try. But, see, Frost is what is he? He's a practical New Englander, see? So, eh, got promises to keep, got to go. Now, is there something more in this poem? What do we have here? This guy's going through the woods, and there's woods here, and the guy's house is in the village, and he just stops to watch the woods fill up with snow. And the horse is having a problem with it. They're between the woods and the lake. It's dark. He's attracted by these woods. He kind of likes to stay there. But he's got duties and responsibilities. This will have to wait till the end of his life. Now, is there another dimension to this poem? Do you hear anything else? Let's go through it again and see if you hear something else. It's not stated. It's just something you can pick up if you go through it again. Whose woods these are, I think I know. His house is in the village, though. He will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. My little horse must think it queer to stop without a farmhouse near between the woods and frozen lake the darkest evening of the year. He gives his harness bells a shake to ask if there is some mistake. The only other sounds, the sweep of easy wind on downy and downy flake. The woods are lovely, dark and deep, but I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep, and miles to go before I sleep. Is there another dimension in this poem that's not stated but that you pick up? Who's the owner of these woods? 
yeah, who agrees? Whose house is in the village? What's the darkest evening of the year? The winter equinox, yeah. So this is basically Christmas Eve. Aha. Uh -huh. There's a little clue here that you might not catch. Oh, those his woods. Now, Frost is not an Orthodox Christian. Maybe this is just poetry here. I think I know whose woods these are. He won't see me. Maybe that's just a way of speaking so that we're not forced necessarily to a theological interpretation. Or maybe it's the fact that Frost doesn't have the fullness of the faith. But you can pick up another level of meaning. But most people have heard this poem and never picked up. Who owns the woods? Whose house is in the village? What's that refer to? The church. The church building. But then you begin to read it. Okay, where is this guy? Well, he's in the in-between place, between the lake and the woods. I don't know how concrete you can make that, but he's in-between. Some place has got water in it and another place. What's happening? Well, if you're a Baptist, you'd have more trouble understanding this, but most of us, I think, understand. You see, you have some idea of an allusion to water, snow, quietly drifting down from heaven. Baptizing this place that he's interested in. The horse doesn't understand it, but the man's attracted. And then what else is there? There's wind, easy wind. Now, this would not be any good if it was a little treatise on baptism and the Holy Spirit is wind or something, but it begins to kind of fill us with depth if you begin to see that this imagery is common biblical, common American imagery, because America is a Christian nation, that he can draw on to give us an additional dimension. But there's no way to prove this kind of thing. So if somebody says, hey, prove to me that there's anything to do with baptism and the idea of snow falling on this woods and making everything peaceful on Christmas Eve. Well, I can't prove it. And maybe if Frost were here, he'd say, you know, I really wasn't thinking about baptism. I was just in the zone when I wrote this. But that's how creativity works. Stuff comes out of your background and inner mind that you're not even aware of until you come back out of the zone and you look, oh, I didn't realize that all this stuff was there. Any great composer or poet will tell you that. It's similar to the way inspiration takes place. Only inspiration in the Bible is perfect. When the prophet goes into the zone and after, with the spirit, he's finished his psalm or Peter has written his letter and he goes back and says, wow, look what I wrote. That's what happens to me every time I write anything. I go back and say, wow, look what I wrote. So does everybody else. They say, wow, what is this stuff? But you see, it's there, and yet it's not there, it's not given to us by a series of rationalistic statements. You can only pick it up, and you pick it up to a great extent from the rhythm and the music and the flow and the feel of what's here. And I want to maintain that the rhythm and the flow and the feel of the text of the Bible is an aspect of the Word of God. And our translations, all of them, without exception, are inadequate 
because they failed to bring this across anywhere near as fully as they should. Our translations are all made to be read silently, either to be studied, like the New American Standard Version, somebody said a Bible translated by engineers, or something like the New International Version, which is written to be read like a novel. You know, they smooth it all out as much as possible and take away by grade school teachers. Yes. <laughs> okay. The grade school translation. Neither one of these is an out loud translation, but I want you to listen to some out loudness from the Bible. And I'll try to, I'll try to read this the way I think it should be read. And I'm reading from Fox, and Fox advertises that this is a musical flow translation, and yet he drops the ball on the most important aspect of the flow of the text, which is both in Greek and in Hebrew, the continual use of the word and, and this, and that, and this, phrase after phrase, to create the rhythm. But I'm going to read to you from Genesis 40, and you just listen. Do not read along. And after these events, it came to pass that the baker and the cupbearer of the king of Egypt fell afoul of their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh became infuriated with his two officials, with the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he placed them in custody in the house of the chief of the guard, in the dungeon house, the place where Joseph was in prison. And the chief of the guard appointed Joseph for them, and he waited upon them. And they were in custody for many days. And the two of them dreamt a dream, each man his own dream in a single night, each man according to his dream's interpretation, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were imprisoned in the dungeon house. And Joseph came to them in the morning, and he saw them, and behold, they were cast down. And he asked Pharaoh's officials who were with him in custody in the house of his lord, saying, Why are your faces so cast down today? And so forth. Now, do you hear the rhythm and flow there? It's kind of nice because in Hebrew, this word and is just wuh. Well, after these things, well, Pharaoh became infuriated with his officials. We placed them. And in English, we have the same thing. We write it A-N-D, and, but we just say N. And then after these things, it came to pass. And Pharaoh, you see, we just have this little sound that connects. But it makes these things phrases. And when you have a phrase that doesn't start with it, each with his dream, each with its interpretation, you can hear the rhythm of this text. And the text has a rhythm. And if we were to read it out loud over and over again and hear it repeatedly in the synagogue or church, it would shape us a certain kind of way. And we would begin to pick up on things from the repetition and shape and flow of it. And this is what I meant by the chanting style of it, the way I read it. I'll read another passage. I'm not going to read this whole chapter. It's one I've been reading in Sunday school, so I can do it with a little bit more skill. Chapter 21. And when Isaac was old, and his eyes had become too dim for seeing, and he called Esau, his elder son, and he said to him, my son. And he said to him, Here I am. And he said, And now look, I have grown old and do not know the day of my death. So now pray pick up your weapons 
your hanging quiver and your bow, and go into the field, and hunt me down some hunted game, and make me a delicacy such as I love, and bring it to me, and I will eat it, and I will give you my own blessing before I die. And Rebekah was listening as Isaac spoke to Esau, his son. So Esau went off into the fields to hunt down hunted game to bring. And Rebekah said to Jacob, her son, saying, Behold, I was listening as your father spoke to Esau, your brother, saying, Bring me some hunted game and make me a delicacy, and I will eat it, and I will give you blessing before Yahweh, before my death. And now, my son, listen to my voice, to what I command you. Pray, go to the flock, and take me two fine goats from there, and I will make them into a delicacy for your father, such as he loves. And you bring it to your father, and he will eat, so that he may give you blessing before his death. And Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and then I will be like a trickster in his eyes. And I will bring on myself a curse and not a blessing. And his mother said to him, Let your repudiation be on me, my son. Only listen to my voice and go and take them for me. And he went and he took and he brought them to his mother. And his mother made a delicacy such as his father loved and so forth. See, there's a flow here. There's a music here. I don't need to chant it like that. All I have to do is read it. See? And I'll tell you what. You go all the way through this passage and you hear this phrase, her son, his son, my son, brother, father. The word father occurs 24 times in this chapter. The word son occurs 24 times in this chapter. In fact, there's all kinds of numerology here. The name Esau occurs, as I recall, 12, and Jacob, 24. I forget. I've got it all written down somewhere. But I wouldn't necessarily be sitting there counting them up. But you would hear, my father, his father, my son, your son, father, son, son, father. You would get it. Okay. But more than that, there's the flow. And it, it is not the same kind of writing that... We do. It's not journalistic writing. It's not the kind of writing theologians do. It's not pure poetry. It's a kind of speech. Oh, passage that you're super familiar with from the New Testament, written the same way. And the entire Gospel of John is written this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things through Him came into being. And apart from him came into being nothing that's come into being. In him is life, and the life was the light of men, and the light in the darkness appeared, and the darkness did not overcome it. And overlapping phrases, music in it, putting you to sleep. But how it is, now you may open your notebook. We're going to read together Revelation 1, 1 to 20. Now, I want you to practice this. See, I would like to have a Bible translated that looked like what I have here on pages 2, 3, and 4 of these notes. 
of your second slug of notes here, the rereading Revelation stuff. Everybody found it? Revelation 1, 1 to 20. Read this out loud, phrase by phrase, and let it soak in. And then think we would want to do this again and again until it becomes real familiar with us. We can all do it together because we can all read in the ancient world. Learning to read was kind of like learning nuclear physics. That's why the Bible is written in such complex literary forms, because, you know, the amount of time and effort it took to learn to read, you learn to read and write in elaborate ways, save uh, tablets. There weren't a whole lot of clay tablets around back then. But somebody read it out loud to you, and you heard it, and that's important, but we can all do it ourselves, too. So let's do this. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his slaves, the things that must shortly take place. And he signified, sending by his angel to his slave, John, who testified the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, whatever he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and guard the things that are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who was and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the land, to him who loves us, and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion, age after age. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and co-participant in the tribulation and the kingdom and the perseverance of Jesus the Messiah, was on the island that is called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Messiah. I was in spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, Write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea, and I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to his feet, and girded across his breast with a golden girdle. And his head and his hair were like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire and his feet like burnished bronze when it has been caused to glow in a furnace, and his mouth like the sound of many waters. 
and in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shines in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. And I became dead, and behold, I am alive age after age, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Write, therefore, the things you have seen, and the things that are, and the things that will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the messengers of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Okay? See, done that way, you start to feel that this isn't quite prose. It's musical. That's an aspect of the book of Revelation. I think it's better to translate into the things that will take place instead of the things what will take place, but I'll correct that before this goes out. In summary, the semi-chanting style of biblical writing can be brought across in translation. This isn't something that's in Hebrew and Greek and you say, oh, well, you know, we've got to have dynamic equivalents. We just can't do this in English. Of course you can. We just did. And reading the text aloud is one aspect of the text as the Word of God. We don't get all of the Word if we don't hear it and hear its musicality. How we understand the text and how we interpret and apply it will be partly determined by how we hear it. Now, that brings me then to the second thing I want to talk about, and that is that the book of Revelation is both history and ritual, and these things are related to one another, and I want us to think a little bit about how they're related, so we'll change gears here. Not completely, because this way of hearing it out loud brings out the ritual aspect of this text. The whole Bible is this way. The whole Bible is to be heard out loud in a worship service in a community of people. So it all has a somewhat musical quality to it. But as we read the book of Revelation, it's clear that Revelation takes place as a worship service in heaven. And that has something to do with worship on earth because we pray thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we have an eye into heavenly worship. It needs to show us things about earthly worship. And Revelation does that by telling us to reread itself. First, then, just a brief survey of the progress of this worship service in heaven to remind you of what's there or to inform you if you don't never thought of it this way before. John gets called up into heaven. And that's what happens on Sunday morning when the minister calls you into worship. And when he goes into heaven, he sees that the praise of the angels is already going on. He's joining something that's been going on for a while. And on Sunday morning, when we are called into worship, we come into the presence of worship that's already going on. And it's been going on for nearly 6,000 years with angels and the saints and other places in the world. About the time we start to worship, people over in the next time zone to the left or the right, whatever it is, depending on whether you're facing north or south, I guess, but... The previous time zone, they're just kind of ending up, and it's picking up. The Old Testament, you had 24 courses of praise to go through the entire day. Now that the kingdom goes over the whole earth, the turning of the earth on its axis creates the same effect. Praise is always going on, and we join it. And John goes up into heaven, that's praise he sees it that's going on. 
already. What's the next thing that happens? John mourns because the sinfulness of humanity has meant that the new kingdom can't come. And the new kingdom is in this book, and the book is sealed up. And it's all the good stuff that God wanted to give out in the new creation, but it can't be given out because it's sealed up. So John weeps and mourns, and John is the church. We see that in the sixth trumpet. I tried to show you that yesterday. The sixth trumpet has an army from the Euphrates and the two witnesses and John, and they're all the same. I mean, they're linked up. So John's experience that he needs to confess sin and mourn for his sin is the next thing that happens in the worship service. Angels aren't happy to do that, but when a human being now is called into the presence of this ongoing worship, the first thing he feels is, I don't belong here. That's not quite in view in Revelation. Revelation is more global. He mourns over the general condition of humanity. And there's a need of salvation. Well, what happens next is an absolution. Not quite, but a declaration that the Lamb has finished the work and sin has been taken care of. So there's no need to mourn anymore. And so now the praise can be redoubled. Instead of spoken praise, which you have in chapter 4, we now have sung praise with musical instruments because the work is finished. We move from priestly praise to kingly praise. You look in the book of Leviticus, there are no words, there are no musical instruments, there's no singing. When the king comes, well, then they're singing in his instruments. And we have a hymn that goes on while the seals are broken. We know that the angels, John continues to hear the angels singing while the seals are broken because they don't become silent until the trumpets start to come. The trumpets are the sermon, so the singing stops. So while the seals are broken, the content of those seals is anticipating the rest of the book. It's giving the themes. It's actually showing the things that had kept the book sealed up, the reason why the kingdom couldn't come. And now as they're broken, the kingdom starts to come. Just as the hymns that we might sing after the absolution, after the confession and absolution, those hymns of praise and those psalms will anticipate the kinds of things that will go on later on in the worship service. Well, then we get silence for a half an hour, which tells you how long a sermon should last. There's silence so they can hear the trumpets. And once the trumpets have done their work, the singing starts up again in chapter 15. Beginning of chapter 8, the singing stops. We have the trumpets. The end of the trumpets is in chapter 15. The singing starts up again. And what has happened? Well, the saints have been offered to God. This is an offertory. And the offertory in the worship service is not so much a collection. In fact, I don't know that we really need to collect money in a worship service, but we need to have a point of dedication after hearing the word. And taking up tithes and offerings is a perfectly good way to do that. But one could do it in, in any number of other ways. But the saints are offered to God in that sacrifice that has taken place in chapter 14, which leads to renewed praise. And what follows after that is the marriage supper. Surely we don't need to unpack that. And then they are sent out. They follow that horse out into the world and carry the kingdom forth. And that's the dismissal. Okay, I know how it is on Sunday in every church you all belong to. You don't want to leave. You want to stay there all day. And the minister has to force you out by sending you forth into the world. Now, that's the structure of the worship service. It's going on in heaven. John comes up there and he sees it. Now, that's a dimension of the book that's a ritual dimension that covers the same ground as the historical dimension. 
So I see ritual parallels history. Because as we read Revelation, we're reading through a course of historical events that, at least to a considerable degree, degree are going to happen one after another, and they are clocked out and associated with the events in this ritual. A ritual is not something else than history. It's a small form or an encapsulation of history that exposes what it means. Now, in the scriptures, we can see more aspects of this worship service if we were to look back at the law. We're told in Matthew 24 and other places that we're coming up to a day and an hour. The book of Revelation shows us the day, and it shows us the hour, it shows us the year, it shows us the week and the month. And basically, the last hour, last day, last month, last week, and last year of the old creation. It's obvious that the book of Revelation lasts for one hour because during the trumpets the singing is silent for half an hour. And that's about half the book. So the first quarter of the book, we got singing, got a half an hour of silence, we got 15 more minutes of singing, and that's the book of Revelation. That's an hour. That's the last hour. It's also the last day because there are 24 archangels. Each one of those 24 archangels does one thing. Okay, one angel blows a trumpet, and an hour later, the next angel blows a trumpet. An hour later, the next angel blows a trumpet. We've got 24 hours here. I have a whole essay on that in the Studies in the Revelation newsletter. Of course, it's just thoroughly speculative, but if you read the book of Revelation over and over again, then it will soak in on you that this is true. Or it might. It has, to me, I think it is. At least that's one slice of the ritual dimension of the book. We're moving for the last day. 24 hours, that's why there are 24 angelic acts and 24 archangels. Vacating those thrones and leaving them empty so the saints can sit on them. It's also the last year because this book is working through the festival calendar. And you can lay Leviticus chapter 23, which starts with the Sabbath and moves to Passover and first fruits, and then Pentecost and trumpets, the day of covering and the feast of clouds or in gathering. That's the structure of the book of Revelation. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. That's the Sabbath. Passover, going through these churches, inspecting each one of them. That's what the angel does. He inspects to see who's got the blood on the door and who doesn't. And he ends up by saying, you better open this door and let me in. Then we have first fruits, where the sheath is waved. And that's the ascension of Jesus into heaven into chapter 4 and 5. Then we have Pentecost, which is when the law is given. And that's the seven seals that open the book. Then we got trumpets. That's the Feast of Trumpets. Then we got the Day of Covering, which is where one goat is sacrificed and one goat is cast out. The saints are sacrificed in chapter 14. The scapegoat is cast out in chapter 16, 17, and 18. And what follows on that? The Feast of Ingathering or Clouds of Tabernacles, which is the great festival of the year, and that's the Millennium in the New Jerusalem. So this is the last year. It's gone through the year. It's also the last week. We can outline the book of Revelation very readily in terms of the seven days of Genesis 1, progressing from day 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. Not only that, but the various subsections in the book, like the trumpets and the bowls. In both cases, the fourth bowl and the fourth trumpet is against the sun. So it's a fourth day thing. So this is the last week. And I would also suggest as a hint of its being the last month, the month is an important thing in the biblical liturgical calendar. We're always looking at new moons. 
And then the festivals come when the moon is bright on the 15th day of the month, when the moon is full. Months are important. And we got seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. About four weeks there. So there's a hint of the month there. Now these are the fundamental time structures, many of them, and there are more. These are fundamental time structures, ritual structures, in the old creation that are now receiving their last fulfillment here in the book of Revelation. So that's another ritual dimension of the book. We don't have time to unpackage one. I mean, each one of these would take a lecture or two, but just want to point them out to you that Revelation has these things. Now, what happens as we read the book? The first time we read the book through, we see that there are angels in heaven who are performing these ritual actions. We know that the 24 archangels, the 24 elders, are not a picture of the church, but there are some textual variants, and the King James Bible was made from a text that made it look like the elders were the church. But the better text makes it clear the 24 elders are not the church. They can't be the church, because they're in heaven before Jesus is. And Revelation chapter 6 makes it plain that the saints of the old creation who were faithful to the word of God. It doesn't say they were faithful to the testimony of Jesus. It says they were faithful to the word of God, which is the signal for the Old Testament saints. The New Testament saints are faithful to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Those Old Testament saints are not in heaven. They're outside. They're under the altar. They're at a distance. They're not gathered around the throne. And they're waiting to be gathered around the throne. And they say, how long are we going to have to wait? We thought we were going to get together around the throne when Jesus went to the throne. And they're told to wait a little while because that's something that's going to happen in A.D. 70 when the Son of Man ascends to the Ancient of Days in the corporate sense, when the church ascends. But the church hasn't ascended yet, so these 24 elders up in heaven can't be the church. They're angels. The saints are outside. And so these angels are judging and transforming the world. These angels are praising God. We as the church are still at a distance praising God, but not right up around the throne. And they're blowing trumpets and proclaiming the kingdom and proclaiming the end of the world. And they're pouring out bowls to end the old world. They're speaking and acting. They're doing ritual. And these are rituals. I mean, obviously, blowing a trumpet is a ritual. By itself, doesn't do anything. You can stand out here and blow trumpets and the city of Valparaiso is not going to fall apart. So that's a ritual act that represents something else. So these angels are performing these ritual acts. And then they're pouring out bowls. You can pour bowls out all day long and cities don't burn up. That's a ritual act to signify something else. They're doing them. But when they've all done them, those 24 thrones are empty. And in Revelation chapter 20, in AD 70, the saints ascend and occupy those thrones. Now... Look at what the angels do, and we can't survey the whole book, but I want to do this first and show you a pattern of what is happening in history in the apostolic age that the angels do. The angels are the ones who are in charge of the old creation. It says the law was ministered through angels, and so they're the ones who bring the judgments on it and then pass it over, well, under Jesus' direction, but then they pass it over fully to our government. In chapter 6... When the angels start to do their thing, 
the angels command that certain events take place. They call for those events. And basically, angels do them with Jesus as their captain. What are they? Chapter 6. I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, I heard one of the four living creatures. That's an archangel. I mean, that's a cherub. Saying with the voice of thunder, come. Angels are still directing this enterprise. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went forth conquering to conquer. Okay, that's Jesus. He's riding on a white horse. What's the horse? Well, could be the church. Might be angels here. Angels and the church in this period of time. The gospel goes forth conquering. What happens next? When the Lamb broke the second seal, I heard a second living creature. Again, angels are still very much involved in directing things here. Second cherub saying, Come. And a red horse went out. To him who sat on it was given to take peace from the land that men should slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. Who's on this horse? Jesus. Jesus is on all the horses. What's the next thing that happens after the gospel goes forth? Why, war breaks out. You want to understand what the war is? You read the gospels. What kind of war is this? Jesus says, daughter against mother, father against son, husband against wife. That's the war here. That's the second thing that happens when the gospel goes into Judaism in that first century. First, as a proclamation of the truth, some people convert. Then there's all kinds of tension with those who didn't convert. And peace is taken. Then he broke a third seal, and I heard a third living creature saying, Come, angels are doing this stuff. I looked in a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard a voice from the center of the four living creatures. This is the voice from God now. Saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius. Don't harm the oil and the wine. The bread is getting expensive, but the oil and the wine are being preserved. Now, I understand that to mean that the old creation, which is bread-centered and has to do with priests, is being starved out. But the new creation, which is kingly and is associated with wine and oil, is being preserved. Now, I'm not going to defend that. I have written on it at length in the things, and if you want, you can do it there. And we did it a couple of years ago here. I just want to mention it. But I think that's the next thing that happens. When the gospel goes out, people convert. Then there's a whole lot of tension between those who converted and those who didn't. And then as time moves along, the church is preserved, but the old culture starts to starve out and die. And then finally it comes to an end. He broke the fourth seal and I heard a voice of the fourth living creature, the fourth super angel, saying, Come on. And I looked and behold a green horse. This is an emerald horse of Levi. And he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following him. And authority was given over them to a fourth of the earth to kill with a sword and famine, pestilence, wild beasts of the earth, so forth. Okay, that would be the climax of this. This is revealing to us that in a microcosm, a microcron, the history of the apostolic age, we come down now to the judgment that is passed that ends this, this fourfold history. Now, angels are directing this. Angels are doing it. But Revelation tells us to go back and read this again a different way because when we get to chapter 19, when we get to chapter 19, the angels are no longer on the thrones in heaven and they're no longer 
governing history. In chapter 15, we read the temple was filled with smoke and nobody could come into the temple. And I understand that to mean these thrones are empty. Now the saints are going to take those thrones. And what do the saints do? In Revelation 19.11, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. He who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. So forth. Verse 14. The armies that are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white, clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword that he may smite the nations. And he's king of kings and lord of lords. What that says to me is, it says, okay, now go back and reread this book and understand that the new cherubim are the church. And the new angels are the church. And how do I know that? What proof is there in Revelation that the church is now replacing the angels even into this terminology? Well, it's the fact that the pastors of the seven churches are called seven angels. Now, if I go through this again, if I read this book again after A.D. 70, and I read about these horses, I see the church calling for Jesus to come. And then I read about these trumpets, I see the church blowing the trumpets, the seven pastor angels blowing trumpets. And I see seven pastor angels binding and loosing and making decisions, pouring out bold, saying, okay, we've had it with these heretics over here. We've had it, you know, with these Kennedys and these Clintons. We're just going to pour a bowl out on them. We're going to get together and pray and bind them and curse them. Pray Psalm 109. Let them melt away like a snail. Whatever. You have control. Control has now been given to us. A control voice has returned command to us. We now do it. So we read it again, and after A.D. 70, what happens? This gospel goes to every nation. So when the gospel goes to Nigeria, what happens? The missionaries come on the white horse, people convert. Then what happens? The red horse shows up, and you get all kinds of conflict, and all kinds of opposition, persecution. Then what happens? The old gods don't work anymore. The old ways are starved. They keep trying to go back to it, but the bread... The old bread doesn't work anymore, but the church, the wine and the oil, is preserved. And then finally what happens, some crisis that eliminates that whole situation and moves the entire tribe or whoever it is into a new situation. That process is finished. And that happens again and again. And now it's not angels doing it, but we're doing it. We're pushed back to reread the book now. Not with angels, but with humans. Now, one thing that means is that the preterist reading of Revelation is not the only valid reading. The church has always been right, as Rich was saying. If you read this and you see the Roman Catholic Church here because you're living in the days of Martin Luther, that's right. In a fundamental way, I think the book of Revelation tells us to reread it in each generation and see what it says to that generation. That kind of stands to common sense anyway. We all know the Bible continually applies. But the point I'm making is that Revelation itself directs us back through itself to make repeated applications because the apostolic age is microchronically related to the macrochron of the millennium. Now, because of time, I think I'm going to stop right here 
And here on page six, where it says ritual is microchronic time sequence, is where we will start up again tomorrow. But my point is going to be there that rituals are small encapsulated progresses of time that repeat a protochronic sequence and apply it to the macrochron that we're living in. By which I'll just give you a quick example. The Lord's Supper is a tiny little ritual that duplicates the life of Christ so that that whole life is given to us. His whole life and death, Jesus, in all of what he did and is, is given to us. And also is a duplication of your whole biography and the whole history of the church. Your life moves from bread to wine, from childhood and priesthood to kingship and maturity. And it does that in your macrochronic biography as a copy of what Jesus did, and that is concentrated in and revealed in the ritual. A ritual is a duplication of the structure of life in a simple way. <laughs> Elaborate ritual is an oxymoron. Rituals, by definition, need to be simple, and one of the perversions of ritual is to make them real elaborate. I'm going to talk about all that tomorrow. Here I just wanted to talk about two things we've covered. Read this book out loud because you should read the rest of the Bible out loud and try to hear, hear it. It takes more time to read it this way, but it's better. And then second, understand that there is the worship service in Revelation is connected to history, and that history is repeated. The angels in heaven who are the pastors of the old creation were doing ritual acts that corresponded to what they were doing in history. Now, as we reread the book, the pastors of the church and the people in the church do ritual acts on the Lord's Day that duplicate what they're doing in history and what God is doing with us. And that's an important key to the practicality of the book. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.